Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. Our Old Testament reading this morning is from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 18, verses 1 to 11. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was working, he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hands, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, how can I not do with you as this potter has done, says the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will repent of the evil that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will repent of the good which I had intended to do to it. Now therefore say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping evil against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your doings. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, come. Do what you do, make these human words uh, worthy of your word. I pray that you would help us to hear your word well so that we might know you better and make you better known. We pray that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds, that they be acceptable in your sight. And we pray in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So when I went to uh, seminary, all of the, the MDiv students, that is the students going through for pastoral ministry, uh, had to go on internship. It's a little different now, but when, uh, when I was going through, the, the church would decide where you needed to go in order to get some experience that was maybe a little bit beyond what, uh, what you were, had grown up in or what you were used to. So they would, they would pick a place and kind of send you there. Uh, one of my classmates called it internmentship, but I think that's 
That's a little unfair. Uh, I was sent to Florenceville, New Brunswick. Um, and the claim uh, to fame of Florenceville, New Brunswick is it is the unlikely home of McCain Foods International. Um, and also apparently the potato capital of Canada. They, uh, they even have a potato museum, which if memory serves is not as exciting as it sounds. <laughs> I had never been to New Brunswick before, so it was a bit of an adventure. Uh, Kate's dad and I drove a U-Haul 11 hours from Lindsay, Ontario to Florenceville, New Brunswick with all our stuff to our temporary new home. And then the next week, Kate and I did the same drive with nine-month-old Levi, and we began our first season of paid accountable ministry. And there are lots of fond memories from that time, some decent lessons learned, but one of my favorite things was being befriended by one of the older guys in the church who had a wood shop, um, uh, and uh, where he made all sorts of things, mostly with lathes. You know, he, he turned wood into bowls and walking sticks and even apples. Got these apples here for you to look at today. Um, he made these. Uh, one of, one of, there were two men, really. And one of them said that, they, that he, whenever he did this, he thought about uh, Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones. <laughs> he said that like, he would take these discarded, essentially useless pieces and, and turn them into something beautiful. Something, something lovely. I always thought that was kind of a lovely image. You're welcome to come up here and check them out. But what I liked most about uh, this situation was that on my Sabbath day, my, my day off, uh, he would let me come over and turn bowls. Um, he and another guy from church had, uh, would regularly go out and they would cut up fallen trees into kind of manageable sizes. And they'd bring them back and they'd, they'd make blanks, which is basically this sort of rough... Uh, carving of a bull and then they would just put him in his loft uh, where they would dry sometimes for for years and so he had a whole loft full of blanks made ready to be made into beautiful bowls and and uh, he let me come and do that I, I, I was especially fond of, of burls uh, which is the you know, kind of funny growth on the side of trees they, they get these really like fantastic grains that, that otherwise uh, that go kind of every which way uh, and the effect is quite beautiful when it's done, I think. Uh, you can come check these out. Everybody in my family got wooden bowls for Christmas that year, <laughs> needless to say. <laughs> um, I, but, but with burls, like the wood kind of does the work itself, uh, making this, this kind of beautiful um, uh, design. Uh, but part of the challenge of turning bowls is that they're like not smooth and even. Uh, so every once in a while, things will be going along beautifully and then the wood will crack on the lathe. And sometimes that can be fixed with glue and patience. If you were to come up here, you could probably find a spot or two on this nice maple burl that's been fixed. But as often as not, really all you can do is toss it into the fire and start again. It's kind of a lost cause. It feels discouraging, especially if you've been working at it for a little while, right? But really it's the only way to be faithful to what you set out to create. I think anyone who's ever crafted knows something about being faithful to your material and to your vision means sometimes starting, starting over. Now perhaps it's a merciful thing that the prophet Jeremiah was sent to a potter and not a woodworker <laughs> because clay is ultimately more forgiving. Right? Where I had to toss my cracked bowls into the stove, the potter can begin again with the same material. 
reworking it until, as the prophet said, it, it seems good to him. I think the image in this passage that, that Jeremiah preaches to the people of Israel is a hard one in a lot of ways, but also has some pretty incredible grace worked into it. Right? The clay is not thrown away, but rather uh, in order for the potter's vision to, uh, to come to life, in order for the material to be truly honored, in order for the finished product to serve its purpose, whether that's as a jug or a wine goblet, it has to be reworked. This potter is an artist, and he won't settle for a spoiled piece. And I, I think this is important. The same clay that was spoiled can become the vessel that the potter had in mind. Now, a few weeks ago, we were spending time in the company of the, the prophet Isaiah. Um, and you may kind of notice that a lot of what Isaiah had to say is very similar to what Jeremiah has to say. Both of these prophets are urgent in their call for the people of God, the people of Israel, God's chosen people, to live into their vocation as the people who, who will show the world what God wants. They are set free to be a light to the nations, we're told. They are meant to reveal God's love, justice, and righteousness for the whole world. They are the front line of God's renewal of all things. But we know from Scripture they regularly forget that vocation or trade it for something else, something less. They forget the God who set them free from slavery in Egypt, who led them through the wilderness and promised that I will be your God and you will be my people. And instead they chase after other gods, more convenient gods, gods that distract and dissuade them from what the one true God wants, the beautiful world that God imagines. God, they go after gods that seduce them with easy but cheap knockoff versions of what it means to be human. You know, God's vision is for a world that teems with life, a world overflowing with goodness, a world in which we are free to be bound to the God who made us and loves us wildly and to our neighbors whom God made and loves wildly. But all that is traded for self-indulgence, for a cramped vision of both of the world and neighbor, where no one is really free. And what was meant to be good and full of life ends up reeking in, of death in all of its forms. Right? The clay is spoiled. Again, I think there's actually a ton of grace in this image, an awful lot of hope and promise. The clay can be reworked, but there's also urgency. Right? There's a serious call to God's people. God will not settle. God is an artist who will see her vision through to the end, even if it costs. God takes the material too seriously to shrug the divine shoulders at a second-rate piece. It has to be beautiful. That's the only way that both artist and material can be honored. The, the clay is not abandoned, but it will be. It, it must be reworked. You know, in the wake of Jesus, I think that sometimes the Hebrew prophets can be hard for Christians to hear well. There, there can be a temptation to, to take a passage like this and kind of superimpose it on a contemporary situation. It might be easy to do in your mind. And although I certainly think that the time-bending power of God's Spirit makes this a word for today, that God can speak directly into this time and place through this ancient word and witness... I think it's more fruitful to begin by setting it alongside rather than directly over. 
And there are a couple of reasons I think that. One is that we need to take seriously the fact that Jeremiah was speaking specifically and contextually. Right? This is, first of all, a word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah at a particular time, in a particular place, to particular people. It's not that there aren't resonances between then and there and here and now, but we are not the people of Israel in the late 6th century BC. You know, God will speak to us through these words, but we can't lazily assume that it's the same exact word that was spoken to our forebears in faith. And the second reason I think that we put this alongside rather than right over uh, our time and place is that in the wake of Jesus, our situation in relation to sin is different. Now, on the one hand, it's much the same, right? God and sin, that is whatever distorts our relationship with God, our true selves, each other in creation. God and sin don't go together. Right? God has a vision for this world that is good and very good, and anything that would destroy that vision has to be dealt with. It can't be ignored. Now, we don't, we don't talk a lot about the wrath of God in our tradition, and I think that's probably the right choice. But I think we do sometimes risk losing the kind of urgency, the serious faithfulness that Jeremiah and his colleagues call us to, that Jesus calls us to. And we also lose the reality that having a God that can't abide sin is a good thing. Having a God who isn't indifferent to the things that steal, kill, and destroy, the true goodness for which we are made, is a good thing. Like, I don't want a God who doesn't care about the mess in my life or the mess in this world, who isn't fiercely opposed to that stuff, even the apparently good stuff that overshadows the glory for which we're made. A, a, an indifferent God is not a good God. <laughs> an artist who shrugs their shoulders at spoiled clay is not a good artist. But Christians are bold to say that there has been a reworking. You know, and far from being indifferent in Jesus, we see how far God will go to overcome the sin that steals and kills and destroys. How far God will go to render our captivity captive in Paul's great line. How far God will go to get through the stuff that would separate us from God and everything that would mar the glory for which we are made. You know, in Jesus, we see God faithful to this world, faithful to God's dream for a good and very good world, right to the end and then through it. On the cross, we see the, the complete destruction that sin both brings and warrants. We see God torn apart for the sake of God's promises. And so we can sing the words of that old hymn, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not the part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. I bear it no more. And in the resurrection, we see the sure and certain promise that sin and death will not get the last word on us, but love and life will. And that's what makes us urgent now. We don't live in fear of punishment because, as St. John says, perfect love casts out all fear. Or as Paul is wont to say, uh, fear can make us do things, but it can't transform our hearts. Fear can make us do things, but it can't transform our hearts. But in Jesus, we've seen what God is aiming at. The marvelous work that will be the end product of all creation made good and very good. In Jesus, death, sin is dealt with. In his resurrection, we know that there is nothing that will separate us 
Nothing in heaven, earth, or hell that can keep us from God's love, from living fully and freely into the life for which God made us. And we get to be urgent. We get to be eager. We get to get after that and nothing less. We don't have to settle for anything less than resurrection. And I think if we come back to Jeremiah through that lens, I think Christians read all scripture through the lens of Jesus. And I think we hear some pretty important messages. I'm seeing three in particular. The first is the conviction that we are made with purpose. Right? The craftsperson doesn't make things just for the heck of it. Perhaps sometimes it's simply to create something beautiful, and sometimes that's reason enough. And, you know, frankly, I think that if we could imagine ourselves and our neighbors as simply made to show off the beauty and artistry of God, that we would move through the world in a different way. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Each one of us a divine miracle, as our psalm for today puts it. But, of course, I think we're not made just to look pretty and sit on a shelf, you know. Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians that we are what God has made us, that we are literally crafted, that we are God's craftsmanship, that we are God. The the Greek word is poema, from which we get poetry. We are God's poetry, right? Created in Christ Jesus, made in perfect grace and breathtaking love for good works. We are what God has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for us beforehand to be our way of life. You know, from the beginning, humanity made in God's image has been commissioned for good work. In the Genesis story, the humans are are co-laborers with God, working within all that God made so that it might flourish. And nothing has changed there, right? In Jesus, we are set free from the stuff that binds and weighs us down to get after the flourishing, uh, get after that flourishing rather with passion and purpose. And God has good work for us to do. And we are perfectly free to do it and nothing less. We are made with purpose. But of course, we, we know that that sometimes gets obscured. Sometimes we forget. Sin might ultimately be defeated, but it's still trying to take us down with it. And that might be really clear in some of our lives, right? There, there may be some really obvious things that keep us from living abundantly, freely and fully as God made us. There may be something in your life that you know for sure is a challenge. You probably know your own temptations, your own deep down messy places in your heart and life, place things that no one else knows. We've all got them, <laughs> right? We've all got the the kind of weirdly good thing or good news is that everyone sins and falls short of God's glory. This is good news. We don't have to pretend otherwise. I've often heard kind of variations on the, uh, someone will say to me, like, I could never come to church or the whole place would burn down. Or, you know, like, we'd we'd be struck by lightning immediately. And I always want to say, like, yeah, your sin's just not that interesting. (laughs) Right? It's certainly not more interesting than mine. None of us lives perfectly as God would have us live. None of us is always and everywhere a beacon of hope and peace and joy and love that God wants for this world. That's not a requirement for being here, thanks be to God. I think one of the beautiful things that Jeremiah sees in the potter's workshop is the artist's patience. Right? What was spoiled is not tossed aside, it's reworked. And that's what grace does. You know, on the one hand, we delight to say that God loves us just as we are. 
But even more, I think we delight to say that God loves us way too much to leave us that way. The Christian life is at least in part letting the potter shape and then lovingly reshape us so that we can do what we're meant to do faithfully and naturally and beautifully. God doesn't want second-rate vessels. That's not what we're made for. We are created for all the goodness of God. And that's the third thing that I think we see, that God, what God is shaping is moving towards goodness. Right? The potter works the clay until it seems good to him, the prophet says. And we can sometimes get antsy when the prophets start talking about evil. Right? We know the danger of throwing that word around and the way that it gets used to dehumanize and degrade anybody we disagree with. But the things that the prophets call evil, the things that God counts as evil, are the things that are in direct opposition to the goodness that God wants for all things. Greed and violence, injustice, oppression, disregard and enmity, failure to care for our neighbors. This is what God calls evil, and so should we, because we're made for goodness. We're made for love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and generosity and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. These are the things that God wants to shape in us and through us. That is the beauty that the potter is working. So we are shaped with purpose. We are God's craftsmanship. God has good work for you to do. What is God calling you to do? Now trust that call. If it's to give up something or to take something on or just to keep doing what you're doing, trust that call because God is a very good artist. We were shaped with purpose and we can be reshaped. The spoiled parts will not get the last word. If there is something that is keeping you from living fully and freely, uh, give it over. We bear it no more. My sin of the bliss of this glorious thought my sin, not in part, but in whole, is nailed to the cross, and we bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. We're shaped with purpose. We can be reshaped. And God is shaping us for what is good. We are made in the image of God to reveal the glory and goodness of God in our lives and in our life together, and nothing less. So may it be so. Amen. Amen.